Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm talking to JL Collins. He's the author of one of the most iconic books about personal finance and financial independence, The Simple Path to Wealth. He's an advocate of index investing and the pursuit of financial independence. His new book, Pathfinders, contains accounts of people from all different kinds of walks of life who have pursued financial independence and the impact that it's had on their lives. So welcome to the podcast, JL. Thank you, VSG. It's an honor to be with you, and uh, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. So how'd you first catch the investing bug? How'd you get interested in the stock market? Oh, wow. So that goes <laughs> way back. I think uh, it goes back to a trauma, actually, in my childhood, I suppose. My dad was a pretty successful guy. He was a manufacturer's wealth rep, self-employed, and but he was also a cigarette smoker. And cigarettes kill you, but it takes a long time. And on the way to killing you, they debilitate you. So his ability to work declined as his health declined. And he was not a saver and investor. And so our standard of living, which had been pretty good, went from that to being pretty tough. And that made an impression on me. And so at an early age, at some level, I decided I didn't ever want to be dependent only on my ability to trade my time and labor for income. I wanted to have something else that would fill that gap. And probably at the time, I didn't quite know what that was. As I got a little bit older and went through college and everything and came out and and started working my first professional job, I decided just arbitrarily, because there was no internet, there was no FI community out there. I didn't know anybody who thought this way, but I just thought, you know, I can live on half of what I'm earning. It's a whole lot more than what I was living on in college. And I'm going to spend the other half buying my freedom. So 1975, I started investing. And I was a stock picker in the beginning because that was the same year that index funds were created by Jack Bogle. Same year he created Vanguard, but I didn't know that. And even if I'd known that, I wouldn't have been wise enough in those days to embrace them. So, yeah. Cool. And so when you were doing stock picking, I'm curious, before you found the religion of index (laughs) investing, when you were still a heathen, what was your stock strategy? Like what kind of stocks did you buy? Were you like growth investor or value guy? What were you doing? When I still had the disease, right? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I sort of did a little bit of everything because again, there was not a lot of guidance out there. So when ideas would come to my attention from whatever source, I didn't really think in terms of growth and or value. I found terms of does it make sense? And sometimes they were growth stocks, sometimes they were value. I think I probably more to the growth side because in those days I was looking to hit home runs, which I think is a terrible strategy in retrospect. But I gotta tell you, when you do that and you get one that works, there are a few things more intoxicating than looking through and picking a stock and putting your money and then watching it do what you hope it would do. But the very first stocks I ever bought were Texaco and Southern Company. Again, this was 1975, and I didn't know anything. And I had the princely sum of $5,000. I was working in downtown Chicago at the time. I walked down Michigan Avenue to a storefront brokerage, and I walked in and 
told the nice lady I wanted to buy some stock. And she introduced me to a stockbroker because that's how you did it back in those days. And he asked the traditional questions like, what's your risk profile and all this kind of stuff. And I said, well, you know, I work pretty hard for this money, so I guess I don't want to lose it. In retrospect, he put me in Texaco, which of course was an oil company and Southern Company, which was a utility. They both paid pretty good dividends. And given what I told him, he did well by me. I think those were reasonable things to have put me in. But unfortunately, of course, because I was such a novice, the moment I owned them, I was obsessively looking at the stock price every day. And the moment they posted a little bit of a gain, I said, as I recall, I, I sold them out. <laughs> so not the best strategy. Gotcha. And what was your career? So I've gotten the impression from your books that you've had a few different career. So what was your career when you were working? Well, I mean, yes and no. I spent the bulk of my professional career in the magazine publishing business and specifically business to business magazines and worked for several different companies in that arena. I started selling ad space and then ultimately became a publisher and a group publisher. And so that was part of my corporate career. In the middle of that, for a brief time, I worked for an investment research firm, kind of a little bit of serendipity. I was on a business trip sitting on an airplane, and I happened to be sitting next to a guy who worked for this firm. And stocks and investing were always an avocation of mine. So when I found out he was in the business, I'm picking his brain and we're kicking ideas back and forth. And uh, by the time the plane landed, he said, you know, you ought to meet our managing partner. So one thing led to another. And for a brief moment of time, I was in that business, but then I went back into publishing and that's where the bulk of my career is. Gotcha. And I know that you've taken career sabbaticals. There have been times when you've had enough money where you can quit for a few years and then you took advantage of that. So what are kind of the advantages of a career sabbatical? Joining the investment research firm was kind of a classic example of that, right? So because of my strategy of investing 50% of my income, even though I wasn't certainly in the early years all that good an investor, it, it still paid off. And of course, I got better at investing. In fact, I achieved financial independence as a stock picker and by extension, picking actively managed mutual funds that were run by stock pickers. But it's not an on-off switch. It's not like one day you have nothing and the next day you're financially independent. There's a path, a journey. And each step you take along the journey, your wealth grows and your fiscal power grows and your option grows. And so at a pretty early age, all of that emboldens you or can embolden you to make more aggressive choices in your life, a bolder choices. And it certainly did for me. So I loved working. I just didn't want to have to do it all the time. So I would tend to work very intensely when I was working. But the downside of that is you burn yourself out and then you're really no good to yourself or to your employer. So eventually I recognized that I would step away for a sort of my own sabbatical, which was not well accepted in those days. So it took a little creative resume writing to cover those gaps at times. But yeah, it was great. And I used most of those sabbaticals to travel. One time I used to join the investment firm, another time to try to launch a business that didn't work. So all kinds of different things. And they range from, I think the shortest was maybe three months and the longest was five years. Well, and I know that in that kind of same vein, you've talked about how there's a difference between FU money and FI. So what is the difference between the two? Well, being clear that this is my definition, in my opinion, I think most people out there see FU money and being financially independent as the same thing. 
But for me, I think being financially independent means that you now have enough assets working for you that you no longer have to trade your time for money. It's throwing off enough money to meet all of your needs and maybe a little more. And then FU money is that interim step that we talked about a moment ago from when you first start on the path and you start accumulating wealth and power that comes with having wealth for those bolder decisions that allows you to say FU if the situation recalls for it. I think that's why I think of FU money is that money you have in the interim that allows you to do things like step away from a job and take a sabbatical or try a different kind of work as I did. I agree with your definition. I think that makes a ton of sense because, I mean, even if you're not totally financially independent, there's still some optionality there. Like if you have five or 10 years worth of expenses invested, like I think it gives you a lot of optionality. One of the objections I think people have or one of the things they find intimidating about stepping on this path to financial independence is if you're starting from ground zero and you're looking at the kind of money that you need to have to be fully financially independent, it can feel a little overwhelming. And I think it's important that people realize that well, yeah, that might take a while, but every step you take along the way, just like going to the gym, you're a little bit stronger. One of my favorite quotes is from a guy named Leo Burnett. He was a ad agency guy. He Back in the 50s, 60s, he started a pretty successful ad agency. But the quote is, if you reach for a star, you might not get one, but you won't come up with a handful of mud either. So if you start on this journey, you may never be financially independent, but you will be considerably financially stronger than you would have been had you not started. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, even just like the first steps, like for instance, getting, if you're in debt and you get out of debt, you're not financially free, but that's a huge weight off of someone's shoulders. Yeah. So you've written a lot about debt and how you've called it a ball and chain. So can you elaborate on that perspective? Like why is debt a ball and chain? Well, I don't think you can ever be financially independent if you're dragging debt around. Now, with the possible exception of a mortgage for your home. And of course, if you're in business, then sometimes businesses require carrying debt and financing and what have you. But setting that kind of stuff aside, consumer debt is what we're talking about. That kind of debt is insane in my view. It's like looking whatever you're going to buy. Let's say it's a car and saying, oh, that car costs $30,000. I don't want to pay $30,000. I want to pay much, much more than that. That's what you're doing when you borrow money. It's become so accepted and so common in our culture, this bothers me because it should not be acceptable. I mean, carrying debt is Mr. Money Mustache likes to say, another blogger, it's like your hair's on fire. I mean, getting out of debt is, there's nothing more important if you're carrying it. And if you're dragging that ball and chain around, it's trying to compete in a swim meet or a marathon. It's just, you're not going to do well. The analogy I like better than that one actually is one I've come up with more recently. It's like being covered with leeches, with blood-sucking leeches. And the fact that people see this as normal and acceptable, it's the same thing. So you need to take out your sharpest knife and start scraping the little bloodsuckers off. Why do you think it's become so normal? Like I think back to my grandparents and for them, debt, totally toxic. Then you get to kind of the baby boomers and they get more comfortable with it. Now it's totally normal. Everybody's walk. People are walking around with student loans, credit card balances, car loan. Why do you think that we've gone to that kind of mindset? I don't know that I have the definitive answer. A couple of things that occur to me, it's become so accessible. So when I was in college, which is back in the late 60s, early 70s, 
no credit card company at their right mind would have offered me or any other student a credit card. And if somebody had proposed that, they would have said, you're out of your mind. These people don't have income. They don't have a credit rating. We would know who would extend credit to those kinds of people. Well, they figured out that those kids had parents that would back them up. And of course, bad debt is just part of the game. And if you charge enough interest, you can write off the bad debts that don't work. And for the most part, they do wind up paying it back. And merchants figure out that if you can sell your product on credit, you're going to sell a lot more of that product and you're going to get because more people will be able to buy it and you'll be able to charge a higher price for it. I think that's one of the driving things behind the incredible increase in the cost of college. When I went to college, you could, on rare occasions, borrow a little bit of money for that. But it was not this common idea that students just, as a matter of course, take on huge amounts of debt. Well, when you allow anything to be purchased with debt, the price of that has room to move up. And I think that's what's happened there. We live in a, you mentioned the baby boomers, and I think what's notable about that generation, which of course is my generation, is that it's post-World War II, it's the beginning of the TV era, it's the beginning of a lot of advertising and commercial on TV, you know, the idea of creating need in people. The television advertising, you know, you need this kind of car and this kind of, and you, you deserve a break today, all of that. And now it's exacerbated with the internet, all the stuff that goes with it. So I think there's a constant drumbeat that's encouraging people to spend money. And if you don't have the money, that's okay. We have an easy finance plan. So I think it's that's the kind of thing. And so it takes an effort to go against that tide. But if you want to be free and wealthy, you're going to have to make that effort. Yeah, and I really agree with what you said about college because they've turned into luxury resorts as the tuitions and everything have increased, which is pretty crazy. It's, like, it's what a, are you there for, for a resort or an education? It's obscene. When I went to college, the accommodations were incredibly basic. They didn't feel that way because everybody was in the same boat. Right. When my daughter went to college and she's now 31, so it's probably moved even more in that direction. But I couldn't believe how luxurious the accommodations were, the increase in building that's going on in universities, because they have all of this huge influx of revenue that is coming to them. And of course, they're going to spend it. So there are all kinds of fancy buildings and dorms, what have you. And but that stuff costs money. And of course, students and parents can't afford it. But no problem. We have student loans that don't worry your pretty little head about it. Being so, <laughs> you know, just borrow. And the idea that we have 18-year-olds borrowing sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars, in my mind, it's criminal. Yeah. And it's sad because, I mean, often they're getting into careers where there's no way that they can possibly support right. that debt. And the colleges are just complicit. It's like they don't care. It's like they're mob loan sharks or something like well, what they're saddling people with yeah i mean caring is against their best interests obviously they want the maximum amount of revenue and because hey it's building fancy buildings is fun and of course college presidents and administrators and i can't think of the numbers offhand but what those guys were making back in the day what they're making now is just is stunning. So obviously there's no motivation on the part of the colleges to reel this back in. Yeah, absolutely. For someone who has, for instance, like a 22 year old who's graduated from college and they have a lot of debt, what advice would you have for them to 
get out of that situation. I suppose it's like getting out of any debt situation. You just have to start scraping the little blood suckers off. The student loans run a pretty wide gamut, as I understand it. And to be clear, I'm not an expert on this, but if you have a student loan that has an exceptionally low interest rate, which I understand there are some of those out there, well, that's probably something you don't want to pay off all that quickly. If your interest rate is three, four percent or something, this applies to any kind of loan, by the way, and certainly mortgages fall into this category, then that's kind of debt I'd be inclined to just pay off slowly because I can get a better return on my money investing in low-cost broad-based index funds. But if you're looking at an interest rate of six, seven plus percent, which is also common, when you pay that debt off, it's like getting a guaranteed return of that interest rate. So if you pay off a 7% loan, that's a guaranteed return of 7%. Credit card loan of 18% and you pay it off, that's like a guaranteed 18% return. So that's obviously where you need to focus. And if you have several different kinds of debt, my advice, which I guess runs counter to the broader world, is pay off the highest interest rate debt first because that's where your biggest return is. I understand there's a school of thought that says, oh, pay off the smallest dollar amount debt first, and then you get the psychic satisfaction of having knocked that one out and then turned to the next one and undone the line. And I guess I see the psychological appeal to that, but I'm not a huge fan of adjusting your investment and dealing with debt based on what's psychologically comfortable. I think you ought to adjust your psychology to what's most effective. And most effective is paying off the most expensive debt first. Yeah, that makes sense. It's the avalanche versus the snowball. So you're an advocate of the aval of the avalanche approach, which I mean, both of them work as long as you get out of debt. <laughs> My yeah, I haven't heard it referred to that way, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about financial independence, what do you think most people don't understand about financial independence? Ooh, another great question. I think the biggest misconception is that it's a path of deprivation, because I think when people first hear about it, you know, the idea of maybe they meet somebody who is on the verge of retiring at a very young age, or somehow shares the fact that they're building pretty substantial wealth. Obviously, I think that appeals to everybody. When they start inquiring as to what it takes, and of course, one of the things it takes is organizing your life as I did, in such a fashion that you're living on less than you earn and you're investing the difference. Well, now suddenly in people's mind, that means, well, wait a second, so I can't drive the fanciest car and I can't buy the biggest house and I can't, you know, well, now I want to have money. I want to be rich. I want to be financially independent, but I don't want to give up all these other things. And to me, the way I think of it, the way I suggest people think about it is it's just an alternative way to spend money. So you're not depriving yourself of anything. You're just, as we all do all the time, choosing, because the vast majority of us have a finite amount of money available, you're choosing, well, what's the most satisfying, best way for me to spend my money? And for me, buying my freedom was far and away the thing I wanted most. Focusing on that wasn't deprivation at all. That was just me choosing the best most desirable use of my money, far more desirable to me than fancy car or bigger house or, or whatever. So that's the framework I'd suggest people use. 
And people learn anything from this interview. I think the biggest thing I want them to take away is that this is an option. Spending some of your money to buy your freedom is an option because I don't think most people are even aware that that's an option. Now, once you know that's an option, you may say, yeah, I still want the fancy cars. I don't now I don't care so much about financial freedom. I'm not in favor of that decision, but it's not my money. It's not my life. But at least now you are aware of, of the fact there is another approach, another option that you could choose. Yeah, I agree with that. And I mean, even when you think about the deprivation aspect of it, I mean, I just don't think of a lot of it as deprivation. If you have, is a fancy car really that much better than typical like used Toyota maybe? In the grand scheme of things, does it really matter that much? I'd rather have some freedom, have some margin of safety in my life versus having all these wild luxuries. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. One of the, speaking of cars, one of the things that I find kind of amazing, a little disturbing, but great marketing on the part of the car companies is, I don't mean to pick on Toyota because a lot of car companies do this, but you look at Toyota comes out and creates the Lexus division. Mm -hmm. And initially they created the LS 400, which was a unique car designed to compete with Mercedes and BMW and those kinds of things. But then they extended the range to where you could buy a Toyota Camry loaded with options, or you could buy a Lexus. I don't even know what the Lexus version of it is, but you could buy a Lexus version, which is basically a Toyota Camry. Yeah. <laughs> a Lexus, and maybe it's a little bit fancier, but it's considerably more expensive, far more expensive than whatever extra doodads are on it, because people have a psychological need to say, I drive this luxury brand, even though the driving experience is essentially the same. And to me, that's a psychological weakness. But it's amazing how Toyota sells far more cars than Lexus does. So there's not the vast majority of people evidently don't fall prey to this, but it's kind of amazing how many people do. And I think it's sad. And I think those people are squandering money they could be spending, even if they didn't want to pursue financial independence. You could be spending that money on some other consumer things that you might enjoy more or even just having less debt. But yeah, it's certainly astute marketing on the part of Toyota and understanding human psychology that they can get away with it. But I sometimes I think, man, if I was the CEO of one of these companies and somebody came to me with this idea, I'd probably be, you're out of your mind. Nobody would be that silly. <laughs> <laughs> $20,000 more for the same car just because we put fancy badges on it. And of course, yeah. I would have been wrong. <laughs> yeah, never underestimate what people are capable of. So, so that's why I'm not the CEO of Toyota. <laughs> yeah, something that you've written about, like I thought I liked this in the book, you were talking about a contrast between a friend of yours who made $40,000 a year and achieved mm -hmm. financial independence versus another friend of yours who got an $800,000 bonus and it wasn't enough to keep his lifestyle going. So what do you think are the main lesson of those two people? I met the $800,000 bonus guy in that sojourn working in that business and a uh, great guy, by the way, and, you know, very talented. And by the way, the $800,000 was only the bonus. Now in that business, a bonus can be a large part of your income, but it's certainly not all of it. And this goes back probably the early nineties when $800,000 was real money. And uh, he and I were in, he was working in Chicago at the time. And I happened to be in Chicago and we were having lunch. And, and he was one of these people who was very open about his income and his spending. And we spent lunch talking about this bonus he'd gotten. 
and how it wasn't enough to meet his needs. And you're laughing. Yeah, it's a while. <laughs> the people who are listening to us can't see that, but you're kind of laughing, and it makes me laugh too. But over the course of the lunch, when he'd walk through the lifestyle he'd put together with the houses and the cars and the private schools and the, you know, on down the line, he was right. It just mathematically was not enough money. And so he is never going to be financially independent. And I think unless he radically offer alters his life and frees up some income and figures out how to live on, say, half a million dollars a year, which most of us could figure out. But I think the main takeaway from that is that one of the pushbacks to embracing this approach is, oh, it's only for people who make really large salaries. Nobody who makes modest amounts of money can possibly do this. And if you read Pathfinders, for instance, my new book, you'll find lots of stories from people with very modest backgrounds who are doing it that prove that that's not the case. Certainly, if you're going to walk this path and you have a big salary, if Ken chose to walk this path with his $800,000 bonus, certainly he would have a leg up. But the important thing is not how much money you're making, it's how much money you keep. You have one person in the book who makes minimum wage, and they make tips and yeah. things like that with it, but a minimum wage job and they're achieving financial independence. So it's really possible at all levels. Right. And then the way they do that is that's a fascinating story. If it's the same one I'm thinking of, this is a guy who's basically a ski bum. So they also only work three or four months out of the year. And they're still, that provides enough money for them to live on, plus to have access to invest to, towards becoming financially independent. And the way they're doing it is they've created a, a very inexpensive lifestyle. He has roommates and they just lives very cheaply. And that's not deprivation in this person's life. I mean, he's not, I don't even know if he owns a car. I don't know. He sounds like he has a great life. He has a brilliant life, but yeah. it's not a life filled with fancy cars and big houses, right? So it depends on what you want out of life. Absolutely. So what advice would you have for someone who wants to resist the pull of lifestyle inflation? Like say you get into a real high paying profession, like you're getting in, becoming a lawyer or something. What would your advice be to kind of resist that slippery slope where you're in golden handcuffs? If we're talking about somebody who is at the beginning of their journey, then my advice would be to keep living like a student as long as you can, because I think most people that I've talked to, the years they were a student, this certainly applies to me, were some of the best years of their life. I have never been poorer or had more fun than when I was in college. Me too. <laughs> and I think that's pretty common. So if you take that ethic forward, like I did when I got my first professional job, I thought, I know people who are living on half of what the salary I just got is. So I know it's possible. And I also know it's far more than I was living on in college. So it was a huge step up in my lifestyle, just living on half my income. I think if you have that kind of discipline and you say, oh, I'm going to invest half my income, or some people do 60, 70, it's interesting to me. I get a lot of pushback from people who are new to this idea, say 50%. That's, you're kidding me. Nobody actually does that. Well, au contraire, I've done it. I've met countless people at this point who have not only done it, but pushed back from the other direction and say, JL, 50%, you piker, you're doing 60, 70, 80% if you're really serious about this stuff. So I think that would be my first step is recognize that money doesn't equal happiness. Freedom is going to be a much better barometer for happiness. And that's the 
most important thing you can buy with your money. And if you don't get caught in the lifestyle inflation trap, then you're never going to have to unwind it. It is much more difficult for somebody in, say, their mid-30s or 40s, like my friend with the $800,000 bonus, it's much more difficult, it seems to me, to unwind that mm. it is to never let it get a hold of you. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I found a nice little hack that I do is I have direct deposit. So you can have direct deposit go to two accounts. So what I do is I have one go to my checking account. And then in my mind, that is the only money that exists that I right. can spend. And then the rest goes into my brokerage account. And it's like, I just pretend, hey, that money's not even there for spending. It's just for the future. That's a great hack. I love it. That helps a lot. So another thing I thought was an interesting theme from your book was people who pursued like geo arbitrage. Like you had one family who moved to Ohio where they had a much lower cost of living. How do you think about geo arbitrage as a strategy in pursuing financial independence? Yeah. So that particular story, again, if it's the same one that I'm thinking of, was a couple who were actually from Ohio and they moved out to Silicon Valley for jobs because they're really high paying jobs out there. And they were very careful not to get caught up too deeply in the cost of living. So they kept their expenses as low as possible, which was a challenge in Silicon Valley because it's an inherently high cost of living place. But like anything else, it's doable if you put your mind to it. And they did. And they worked there for a number of years, accumulated a chunk of money, and then moved back to Ohio, which was where they're from, where they loved, and it was far less expensive. That's geo-arbitrage, where you make money in a high-income, maybe high-cost-of-living area, but you spend the money in a low-cost-of-living area. And one of the beauties of the modern world is there are so many people who can work remotely. My daughter's one of them. She's spending the whole month of December with us, and she's still working, but she can work. She could be anywhere in the world. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. And so there are lots of places in this country, in the United States, that are far less expensive than New York or California or some of those places. And there's certainly lots of places in the world that are beautiful, that are far, far less expensive to live than in the U.S. So that's the essence of geo-arbitrage. And it also allows you to live maybe a much bigger life for a given amount of money. At the same time, you can be in a beautiful part of the world. Yeah, I was, someone was talking the other day about like a cost of an apartment in New York and it's like $5,000 or something. It's like that could get you the most luxurious lifestyle imaginable in most parts of the country. It gets you a closet in New York. Yeah, yeah. It could get you a mansion, you know, in the Midwest. So let's shift gears, talk a little bit about indexing. So you are the king of indexing. You are the biggest advocate since Jack Bogle, I think, for indexing. So what's the pitch for indexing? Why should indexing be pursued as a strategy? First of all, I take that as a very high compliment. And just being mentioned in the same breath as Jack Bogle is, is high praise in my world. So thank you for that. Jack Bogle is the guy who created the first index fund in 1975. It tracked the S&P 500. And he created Vanguard at the same time, which has some unique characteristics as an investment firm that aren't shared anywhere else. But Bogle's insight was that if you just bought the entire market, if you bought all 500 companies, that you would accomplish a couple of things. One, you would get the return of the market overall. 
you would have far less expense in doing it because you wouldn't have to hire expensive analysts and money managers to choose stocks. And since it's almost impossible long-term to outperform the market by choosing stocks, you're going to get better performance. Well, those were kind of outrageous claims back in the day, and they very much threatened the existing hierarchy, which made huge amounts of money in charging commissions to buy stocks and fees if you bought an actively managed mutual fund. It's kind of hard for anybody today to appreciate how expensive it was to get in and out of the market back in the day. If you were buying individual stocks, as I did that first time, I think I spent five or 6% in commission buying them. Wow. And then five or 6% selling them. So unless your investment made 10 or 12%, you weren't even breaking even if wow. you were trading. It's just unfair. And of course, now you can trade stocks virtually for free. The ER, the expense ratio on mutual funds in those days was commonly two and a half, three percent Now, even in an actively managed fund, it's under 1%. And for an index fund like VTSAX, which is Vanguard's total stock market index fund, that's the one I invest in, is 0 0.04. I yeah, mean, it's basically free. It's almost nothing. Change is incredible. And that's what makes Jack Bogle, in my mind, a fiscal saint, because he really shifted the game in favor of the investor rather than in favor of the brokers and the companies. So an index fund simply buys every stock within an index. And it has a tremendous advantage of being far less expensive. And Bogle was famous for saying performance comes and goes, but expenses are forever. So inherently, you begin with an advantage as an index investor. And then the research has absolutely confirmed Bogle's contention that it's extraordinarily difficult, especially over time, to outperform the market. So I think one of the hangups people have is they say, well, if I invest in an index fund, I get the market average. I don't want average. I want better than average. And by the way, the investment firms play on that sentiment. <laughs> well, average in this term means something entirely different. It's not the average of possible investment returns. It's the return of the market. And the return of the market is far above average. In any given year, I think maybe 25% of active managers outperform the market. So from year one, you have a 75% chance of being of outperforming any active manager. And then the further out you go, the number of managers shrinks that outperform from 25% down to 20 to 10 to 15. You go out 30 years, it's less than 1%, right. which is zero that outperform. Yeah, it's pretty sobering when you look at the data, like there's the Spiva data. And then another great set of data is the data from the Buffett bet from 2007 oh, yeah. to 2017, where the average hedge fund returned less than 3%. So yeah, hedge funds are amazing to me because and amazing in the sense that anybody would buy them. If you talk about high fee, I mean, the way an investment for an hedge fund works is two and 20. Sometimes I've even heard three and 30. And what that means is well, there's a 2% ER expense ratio, which means that, so they take 2% off the top, regardless of performance, and then they take 20% of any profits. Now, you think about that for a second, because they're not taking 20% above of in outperformance against an index, against the market. They're taking 20% of any profit. So if the market goes up 15% a year and they're up 10%, they're going to take 20% of that gain. Mm -hmm. It's not a great 
performance. Yeah, it's horrible. (laughs) Right. It's pretty horrible. And how the investor makes money with that kind of drag of expenses and hedge fund guys are looked at as being these masterful investors. And I don't know, maybe in some cases they are, but it's because so many of them are billionaires. Well, I don't know. It seems to me they're not necessarily billionaires because they're so great investing. They're billionaires because they're great at convincing people to put capital with them and then drawing huge fees from that capital. That's how you become a billionaire, at least as a fund manager. So it seems to me. There's a British investor, Terry Smith, who did the math on Warren Buffett. And he said that if Warren Buffett charged two and 20, it would basically be a market return. So if the greatest stock picker in the history of investing can't beat a two and 20 hurdle, then who can? <laughs> well, I mean, that's a huge hurdle. Regular actively managed fund that back in the day was charging 2%. 2% a huge hurdle to mm-hmm. market, right? So, and then when you're doing two and 20 or three and 30, I actually, I have a guest post from this year on my blog from Ben Carlson, who's become a friend and he has more experience with uh, hedge funds than I do. And so I asked him to write a, a guest post on why do people invest in these things? It's a very interesting kind of thing. And part of it is that it's sort of an inner circle. So, you know, if you're working for the Harvard pension, uh, or not pension, the endowment, you're probably a Harvard graduate and you probably are friends with the Harvard graduates that are running the hedge funds. And, you know, if you put money with the hedge funds, you're hobnobbing with them. Maybe you're opening a door for future employment. You get to ride around on their yachts. And there's a lot of incentives beyond what performances. Now, in fairness, the hedge fund guys will say, well, our goal isn't necessarily beating the market or maximum performance. Our goal is hedging against risk, hence the name hedge fund. And so that's how we should be judged. And I'm like, well, okay, you know, (laughs) I'd rather have the performance and then absorb the downtimes from my accumulated wealth. Gotcha. And talking about those institutions, there is a guy, Steve Edmondson, who runs the pension in Nevada. He shifted the Nevada pension towards an indexing approach. Do you think that's kind of the wave of the future for institutions where they should embrace more of an indexing low-cost approach instead of trying out private equity and hedge funds and venture capital and all this stuff? Do you think that that's a better approach than doing all these alternatives? So there's two questions there. I'll answer the the second one first. Do I think it's a better approach? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because essentially that's the approach I advocate. So not surprisingly, if I were given the responsibility of running a pension fund or an endowment or whatever, I would absolutely do exactly what I say in the simple path to wealth. Because it was that kind of fund, it would be predominantly total stock market index fund, probably 75, 80%, and then balanced with a bond fund. Uh, to smooth the ride, which is not necessarily the recommendation I have for my daughter who's working and building her wealth. I have her 100% in in the total stock market index fund. But yeah, absolutely. Now, the first part of your question was, do I think that's the coming wave? And my guess is no. I Kudos to the guy in Nevada. But that's a bold step to take because he's going to be ostracized by that overall community. And he's not going to be invited on the yachts and, you know, he's not going to get all those perks. And I think he's done what's best for his institution and what's probably not best for himself. I don't see a lot of money managers making that choice. I agree. I think more would benefit from, oh, from no that question, approach. No question. It'd be nice if, if they did that. One of the things that's been wild is uh, the California 
pension fund. So that CalPERS, they have these tremendous expenses and they're doing all these things and none of it seems to beat the market. So what, what is the point of all of this crazy activity? Well, the point of it is it makes for a good life for the people running it, <laughs> for people serving it. Yeah. And, you know, and that's the wrong priorities, but that's the way the world's structured. So yeah, I mean, kudos to the guy in Nevada. I mean, that's the way, it should, in my opinion, it should be done. But yeah, absolutely. So something I thought would be fun to do is we could talk about criticism of index investing and you can rebut them. So let's do that. I can try. Let's go for it. So some people who claim that there's a passive bubble, that too many people are going passive and it is distorting price discovery. What would you say to that theory? I've heard that Jack Bogle addressed that probably better than I can mm -hmm. not too long ago, where he pointed out that there is still an enormous amount of active investing going on, people buying and selling stocks, which is that active discovery that you're talking about. So index investing has grown dramatically, but it hasn't gotten anywhere large enough to impinge on that. Mm -hmm. The other Bogle made is that if you go back in the day and you look at the market from the 60s and 70s or early 70s before indexing, right, where it was all active, 100% was actively chosen kinds of things, finding that those theoretically, those ideal prices. Well, just in the fraction of the market today that's doing that is far larger than the entire market was back in those days because it's grown so much. Mm -hmm. There is plenty of that activity going on. So then the next question is going to become, well, okay, that's now, JL, but what about if indexing keeps growing? And is it, you know, isn't it possible that we'll get to a point where it does impinge on that? Yes, it's possible. I don't see it happening anytime soon because the allure of trying to outperform is so strong. There is so much money to be made by the people on the investment side if they can convince customers that they can outperform. It's the same reason I don't think everybody's going to become uh, pursuing FI because the allure of consumerism is so much stronger. But even if it happened, the dynamic I think that would occur is if it got to that point where it was interfering with accurate pricing of stocks, suddenly that would create a wonderful field in which stock pickers could prosper mm. and active investing would outperform. And then, of course, that would happen immediately because people would take advantage of that. And then the research would suddenly, instead of showing as it has for the last 50 years, maybe 40 years anyway, instead of showing indexing outperforming over time, it would begin to show active investing outperforming. And then the money would shift into active investing and then it would turn again. So yeah, I think we're a long way from that happening. I think it'll be self-correcting if it does. So that's my thought. I agree. And I also think a lot of that talk is cope. It's like, oh, well, I'm underperforming, but it's only because of this passive bubble. And <laughs> there's a huge incentive for people in the active world to discredit index investing. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Bogle first brought out index funds in the mid 70s, Ned Johnson, who was the guy running Fidelity, ran a series of ads calling index investing, among other things, un American. I mean, it's absurd. And Bogle, to his credit, had those ads framed. And so whenever you're talking about indexing, the common thing that pops up on Twitter is people will say, well, now show Japan. Like what happened to Japan? So what would your response be to those criticisms? 
Well, so, you know, there's always the outlier with Japan, and there's that's always the one that gets pointed to. Japan was a fairly unique situation, a fairly small and focused country that really did grow in terms of valuations far beyond what any fundamentals could support. The U.S. is a much broader-based economy throughout the world, and while valuations of stocks have increased over the decades, we're far from those kinds of levels. So is it possible that we could go the way of Japan? Well, sure, anything's possible. If that's a concern that anybody has, I think the solution is to go to a world index fund that invests proportionally. So that would be world index funds now are about 50% US and then whatever is proportionate for Europe and Asia and what have you. Yeah, v VT is the vanguard. Total yeah, world fund it, there. It is, yeah, the ETF for that. So I think if that was, a, I don't have that concern myself, but if somebody had that concern, then I think a world fund is not a bad way to go. And I think at some point, actually, a world fund, I probably won't be alive when this happens because I think this is probably a few decades down. But I talked to my daughter, as the world overall gets more and more prosperous, the pie is getting bigger, but the U.S. slice of the pie is getting smaller. That's a dynamic, by the way, that's been going on since World War II, when mm -hmm. the U.S. was essentially 100% of the world economy because everybody else was in ashes. And that's not a bad thing for the U.S. because the pie's gotten so much bigger. So our slice of the pie, which is probably half or less than it was after World War II, is multiple times huger than it was then. So that's good. But it's Right now, the U.S. is the only country I think you can comfortably invest in just that one country. And at some point, that might not be true. It might be just not quite dominant enough for that. And at that point, you'd want to move into a world fund anyway. But I think that's probably a little bit of a ways off. Gotcha. And what would you say to someone who is very like worried about the long-term future of the U.S.? They're worried about, you see this rise in political extremism. We've got deficits. Obviously, we have a lot of issues. Do you ever worry that any of that could derail long-term index investing? Never say never, but it's not a big worry of me. Back in uh, 2015, I wrote a post called Time Machine and the Future Value of Stocks. And if you have show notes, you might want to link to it or yeah, absolutely. people can just remember it. But the concept of that was, again, this is 2015. And I started investing in 1975. So that's a 40-year period. So I started out the post saying something like, imagine back in 1975, you're sitting around with a bunch of your friends and somebody says, hey, I read this guy, Jack Bogle, just created this thing called an index fund. It's going to invest in the S&P 500. I wonder how that's going to turn out over the next 40 years. And I pipe up and I say, oh, well, as a matter of fact, I'm just back from 2015 in my time machine. And I can tell you how the, this coming 40 years unfolds. And then in the post, I list all the terrible things that have happened. You know, in the 70s, there was stagflation and mortgage rates were 18%. And, you know, then we got into, I can't even think about things. We had Black Monday in 87, the single biggest point drop in to date in history ever in the market. You had the tech collapse in 2000. You had the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, 9-11. You had the huge implosion in 08, 09. You know, so there's this whole litany of disastrous things that happened in that 40-year period. 
and which I recount in the post and I'm recounting to the people around the campfire. And of course, the reaction is, oh my God, so glad you told us there's no way we're investing in stocks. <laughs> well, of course, stocks over that 40-year period returned about 12% a year. Now, to be clear, I'm not predicting that for the future. That's extraordinary. But the point is, stocks don't need a perfect world in order to go up. There's a Wall Street saying that stocks climb a wall of worry. And so, yeah, there are a lot of challenges in the world today, but things have never been better. The communication the internet allows of sharing of ideas and ways to solve the problems we're facing has never been more potent. I happen to be a huge optimist of where the future is going. So yeah, there are lots of problems, but there are always problems. There will never be a time to invest in stocks where there are not problems. And stocks will always be volatile. That's the price we pay for the outsized returns they provide over time. Absolutely. And so let's talk a little about 1987. So you've talked about how when you were a younger investor, before you kind of knew that you had to ride it out, you sold in 87 and then you bought back in 88. So what was the climate like in 1987? And I think it's important because a lot of people think when they're in a market panic that it's like a unique event. But I thought it would be interesting if you talked about the climate of 1987 and how scary it was for to be an investor back then. Now it looks like just a blip on a long-term chart. But I thought it'd be cool if you could talk about the climate at the time. And all market plunges look like small blips on the long-term chart. Mm -hmm in history. So I think I'd start out by saying one of the most important things that investors, certainly if you're going to follow my path, you need to understand is that the market's volatile and corrections, which are 10% drop or bear markets, which are 20 or crashes. These are perfectly normal parts of the process. You should never be surprised. It's like hurricanes in Florida or blizzards in New England. They can be dangerous. They can be scary. If you panic and run out in the middle of them, you know, they can do severe harm to you. But if you don't panic, you stay the course, they blow over. And as you said, the market just goes higher. All of that, by the way, you were being kind to me and saying I didn't know, but all of that I knew back in 1987, all right? So I knew what the right thing to do was. In 1987, that was back when I was still using a stockbroker because mm -hmm. uh, I did in those days. And he and I had kind of become friends, probably because he was making a lot of money from my trades. And uh, I'd had a busy day on that Monday at my publishing job. And at the end of the day, for no real reason, I just thought, I think I'm going to call Wayne, my stockbroker, and see what's going on. So I did. You know, this is like maybe five o'clock in the afternoon. And he picks up the phone and I'm like, hey, Wayne, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> there is this silence on the phone. And then finally he says, you're kidding, right? I said, no. And of course, now I know something's happened. And I said, no, why? What's going on? He said, this has been the worst day in history. I have all day, I've had clients calling and yelling at me. I mean, this is the single worst market day in history. By the way, still is to this day in percentage drop. I think it dropped 24% in a day. Hmm. Well, that's the first I heard of it. And I knew what to do, which was to stay the course and let it recover. And I did for about three or four months. I think it happened in September, as I recall, was when Black Monday was. And anyway, I finally, and then the market started grinding down slowly, but grinding down lower and lower and lower. And finally, in around December, I just threw in the towel. 
I didn't have the intestinal fortitude to stay the course. And if I didn't sell the exact low, I was in spitting distance of it because almost the moment I sold, it began to slowly grind its way back up. And of course, that's the problem with trying to time the market because now it's grinding its way up and I'm thinking, this is dead cat bounce. It's going to fall back even lower. I'm going to wait to get in. And well, it didn't. It just kept grinding its way. So by the time I finally got back in, it had not only recovered all the losses, but it set new record gains. And I just left a bunch of money on the table because I didn't have the intestinal fortitude. Never made that mistake again. <laughs> yeah. And were people at the time talking about like, this is another 1929, we're going oh, yeah. into another depression? Or was that the attitude? Yeah, that's one of the reasons that I lost my nerve is because the media is just filled with panic. This is just the beginning of something much worse. And it's the same thing we heard during COVID, same thing we heard in 08, 09. It's the same thing you hear after every tech, every crash or yeah. every correction because the bears come out in force and panic and fear. The news media loves panic and fear because people tune in if they're afraid. And so, yeah, that's a huge drumbeat. I mean, when the market drops, it's hard to stay the course because everybody's panicking around you. But the truth is that whether or not the market makes you wealthy has nothing to do with what you do when it's going up. It has everything to do with what you do when it's going down. Mm. And if you panic and sell, don't follow my advice. My advice will leave you bleeding at the side of the road. For my advice to work, it's essential that you tie yourself to the mast and stay the course. And if anything, you recognize that when the market takes these periodic plunges that should be expected, Things have gone on sale. If anything, rather than panic selling, you should be greedily buying. I think Warren Buffett was one of maybe the guy or one of many people who have said, you know, when others are fearful, be greedy. And when others are greedy is when you want to be fearful. Yeah, I think Buffett, when that started to happen is when he first started to pick up Coca-Cola in the midst of all that. Like after the crash, that was, I think, the first thing he did. He was picking up the phone saying buy Coca-Cola. So which crash are we talking about? 87, 87. That's when he started picking it up. And I read in his book, they were at some retreat and all of those guys, instead of panicking, were on the phone buying stuff. Yeah. You know, I remember in the 07, 08 debacle, Buffett was down like $66 billion. Mm -hmm. Put down in air quotes because the value of his portfolio had dropped. It had been cut in half because everybody's portfolio was cut in half because that's just what happened in the market. But he didn't panic and sell. And therein lies the difference. And I was irritating all my friends running around saying, gee, I wish I was down $66 billion. And of course, <laughs> the reason is by definition, that means that you have another $66 billion and knowing that it's going to recover. So, you know, I was down half my portfolio too for a while, but I didn't panic and sell that time and it all came back and then some and the shares that I bought during that time you know, did extraordinarily well. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. Is there anything you'd like to add for the audience? No, great questions. I think we kind of really covered the subject pretty well, and I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. All right, well, have a good one. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.